Friends, I am blessed to be with you this morning. Thank you for inviting me to preach. I was hoping to join you in person because I had planned to come to San Antonio to speak at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Religion. But because of the pandemic, my presentation went virtual. So here I am speaking to you from home here in New England, bringing you greetings from the East Coast where I serve the two Episcopal dioceses in Massachusetts and also the United Church of Christ in Southern New England. In this ecumenical role, I speak to people of faith about our call to cherish and protect God's creation. If you'd like to know more about what I'm up to, I invite you to take a look at my website, revivingcreation.org. And I want to give a special shout out to your Creation Care team. Thank you for your leadership. And if there's anything I can do to support you, please do let me know. I can't think of a better day to be with you than today, as we launch the season of Advent and begin a new church year. During these four weeks leading up to Christmas, we prepare to celebrate the first coming of Christ, when God became incarnate in Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And we prepare for his second coming, too. We look ahead to that last great day, sometime in the future, when Christ will come again, when everything will be gathered up in love, when all that is broken will be healed, all that is estranged will be reconciled and forgiven, and the Lord of life will return at last to reign in glory. Christianity is full of hope about where we are ultimately heading into the embrace of a loving God. But it is also bracingly realistic about the suffering and turmoil that will take place in the meantime. Today, on the first Sunday of Advent, as we do every year, we must grapple with the Bible's portrayal of the end times, which include frightening predictions of social breakdown and cosmic turmoil. As we heard two weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus foretells wars and rumors of wars. He speaks of earthquakes and famines and persecutions. And in today's passage from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells us that when the Son of Man comes at the end of time, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's scary stuff. And it resonates with our own experience of a shaking world. Snow in Houston, triple digits 
of temperatures in the Pacific Northwest, withered crops and empty reservoirs in the American Southwest, shorelines dissolving in Florida, flash floods rising so quickly that people drown in their basement apartments, wildfires so hot that they generate their own storms, oceans emptying of life and filling with plastic, changes in the jet stream, changes in the Gulf Stream. The signs of a changing climate are visible everywhere. Around the world, throngs of people are already on the move because drought or crop failure or fires or storms have dislodged them from their homes. Indeed, the once stable web of life is unraveling before our eyes. Huge populations of creatures have vanished in less than 50 years. Human activity has wiped out 60%, 60% of the world's mammals, reptiles, amphibians, birds, and fish since 1970. With dismay, scientists are describing what they call a biological annihilation. About one million plant and animal species are at risk of extinction, many within just decades. The world is reeling. So I come to today's gospel passage with relief. It tells the truth. It speaks to our condition. The Bible has wisdom to convey in apocalyptic times like these. What is apocalypse? It comes from the Greek word calypto, which means to cover or to hide. Apocalypse refers to a great unveiling, a lifting of the veil of illusion. And surely in that sense, we live in apocalyptic times. Something like scales have fallen from our eyes and everything that was hidden is being laid bare. For instance, now we know that we can't take the natural world for granted. Now we see the miracle of what we once thought would be ours forever. Predictable seasons, moderate weather, thriving coral reefs, ice sheets as big as a continent. Now we know that the stable natural world into which you and I were born is coming apart. And to quote a conservation wildlife photographer, now we know that, quote, even the lowliest ants or butterflies can no longer be taken for granted ever again. So do apocalyptic end time passages like these mean that we should passively sit back, accept natural disasters that result from human-caused climate change as somehow preordained, part of God's plan? 
That's what some Christians would have us believe. But I don't see it that way. I don't for one minute believe that God wants human beings to burn the earth to a crisp. I don't for one minute believe that biblical end time passages give human beings a license to rip apart the web of life and to destroy the world that our Creator pronounced very good. On the contrary, I believe that God's creative, holy presence fills our precious living planet and that all of it belongs to God. Meadows, rivers, soils and seeds, oceans and animals. As the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And the very first task given to human beings is to care for the earth, to serve as custodians and stewards. As I see it, the Bible's end-time passages and their frightening imagery of chaos and distress were not given to us so that we can indulge in wasteful and disheartening political rhetoric or in helplessness, resignation, or fatalism, but just the opposite. In order to sustain our courage and hope and perseverance, even in the midst of crisis. In this time of climate emergency, I hear three messages in today's Gospel. The first is, don't be surprised by suffering. Jesus warned of social breakdown and conflict. He anticipated natural and even cosmic disruption. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by suffering, our Gospel text reminds us. Don't take your suffering or the world's suffering to mean that God is powerless or that God doesn't care or that God has abandoned us. Everything we are experiencing is held within the gaze, even within the embrace of a loving God. So don't be surprised. A second message. Don't be afraid. Although many people will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, followers of Jesus should take heart. Now, says Jesus, now, when these things begin to take place, now, now, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Stand up, he says, and raise your heads. What bracing words these are when we may feel like curling up in a ball and sticking our head under a pillow. It's easy to feel hopeless and overwhelmed about ecological collapse and climate change. It's easy to feel, to say to ourselves, 
what can I possibly do? I'm just one person. I, how, what difference can I possibly make? But then here comes Jesus telling us to stand up and not be afraid, for our redemption is drawing near. He is very close. And here comes message number three. Don't fall asleep. Stay awake, says Jesus. Be alert at all times. Look for the small but telling signs that God is in our midst, bringing forth something new. Just as the branch of a fig tree becomes tender and puts forth its first soft leaves, assuring us that summer's abundance is near. So Jesus urges us to notice that even in the midst of chaos and violence and endings, God's kingdom is drawing near. In the very midst of endings, something new is being born. As I hear it, Jesus is calling us to stand up and take part in that birth, the birth of a new community, the birth of a new society that lives more lightly on God's good earth and that treats human beings and more than human beings, other than human beings, with reverence and compassion and respect. In this perilous time, God calls us to stand up, raise our heads, and bear witness in word and deed, to God's never-failing love, which embraces the whole creation. And when it comes to healing, there is so much we can do. Earlier this year, the Episcopal bishops in Massachusetts declared a climate emergency. Now our two dioceses are beginning to work together in a more coordinated way as we discuss how we can pray, learn, act, and advocate on behalf of God's creation. The Diocese of Western Massachusetts has web pages on creation care that are loaded with ideas about ways we can make a difference. Some actions are simple, like eating less meat and moving to a plant-based diet, recycling more, driving less, protecting and planting trees, and reducing our use of fossil fuels every way we can. Other actions are bigger and bolder and address systemic change. And that's important because the scope and speed of the climate crisis requires more than changes in individual behavior. They require massive collective actions and a push for policies that help us move quickly away from fossil fuels and that encourage clean, renewable energy like sunshine and wind. A just and equitable transition to a new economy means creating lots of good green jobs for folks now working in the fossil fuel industry. 
and it means ensuring that historically marginalized and low-income communities, you know, the people who are hurt first and hardest by climate change, ensuring that they have a voice at the table where policy decisions are made. If humanity is going to keep living on a reasonably habitable planet, then this transition must happen now. It's up to us, it's up to us to insist that political leaders lead the transition, especially in places where so much of the economy and so many jobs are dependent upon fossil fuels. So here's the last thing I'll say. After COP26, the UN climate summit that just finished in Glasgow, every member of the Episcopal delegation made it clear that protecting the earth and preventing human suffering are not merely political talking points, but central tenets of the Episcopal faith. I was especially touched by the words of the Reverend Rachel Tabor Hamilton, a delegate from the Diocese of Olympia and a member of the Shakan First Nation people. She said, the faith of re-greening the world must become as central to our theology and to our worship as crucifixion and resurrection. We must give nothing less than all we have and all we are in order to assure new life if generations are to follow us at all. The world to come that we pray for in our Sunday worship is ours to entomb or to liberate. I pray that our church, that Church of the Reconciliation and our whole church will become a beacon of light and a leader of bold climate action. As we step into the Advent season and into a new year, may Jesus keep us steadfast in faith and abounding in love for one another and for all until his coming in glory. Amen.